Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 18 A Trip to Stony Lake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 18 A Trip to Stony Lake. O Nature, in thy ever-varying face, by rocky shore or neath the forest tree, what love divine, what matchless skill I trace, my full warm heart responsive thrills to thee. Yea, in my throbbing bosom's inmost core, thou reign'st supreme, and in thy sternest mood, thy votary bends in rapture to adore, the mighty Maker, who pronounced thee good, thy broad, majestic brow still bears his seal, and when I cease to love, oh, may I cease to feel. My husband had long promised me a trip to Stony Lake, and in the summer of 1835, before the harvest commenced, he gave Mr. Y., who kept the mill at the rapids below Clear Lake, notice of our intention, and the worthy old man and his family made due preparation for our reception. The little girls were to accompany us. We were to start at sunrise, to avoid the heat of the day, to go up as far as Mr. Wise in our canoe, re-embark with his sons above the rapids in birch-bark canoes, go as far up the lake as we could accomplish by daylight, and return at night, the weather being very warm and the moon at full. Before six o'clock we were all seated in the little craft, which spread her white sail to a foaming breeze, and sped merrily over the blue waters. The lake on which our clearing stood was about a mile and a half in length, and about three-quarters of a mile in breadth, a mere pond when compared with the Bay of Quinte, Ontario, and the inland seas of Canada. But it was our lake, and, consequently, it had ten thousand beauties in our eyes, which would scarcely have attracted the observation of a stranger. At the head of the Kachawanuk, the lake is divided by a long neck of land that forms a small bay on the right-hand side and a very brisk rapid on the left. The banks are formed of large masses of limestone, and the cardinal flower and the tiger lily seem to have taken an especial fancy to this spot and to vie with each other in the display of their gorgeous colors. It is an excellent place for fishing, the water is very deep close to the rocky pavement that forms the bank, and it has a pebbly bottom. Many a magic hour, at rosy dawn or evening grey, have I spent with my husband on this romantic spot, our canoe fastened to a bush, and ourselves intent upon ensnaring the black bass, a fish of excellent flavour that abounds in this place. Our paddles soon carried us past the narrows and through the rapid water the children sitting quietly at the bottom of the boat, enchanted with all they heard and saw, begging papa to stop and gather water-lilies, or to catch one of the splendid butterflies that hovered over us. And often the little Addie darted her white hand into the water, to grasp at the shadow of the gorgeous insects as they skimmed along the waves. After passing the rapids, the river widened into another small lake, perfectly round in form, and having in its centre a tiny green island, in the midst of which stood, like a shattered monument of bygone storms, one blasted black ash tree. 
The Indians call this lake Besikakun, but I do not know the exact meaning of the word. Some say that it means the Indian's grave, others the lake of the one island. It is certain that an Indian girl is buried beneath that blighted tree, but I never could learn the particulars of her story, and perhaps there was no tale connected with it. She might have fallen a victim to disease during the wanderings of her tribe, and been buried on that spot, or she might have been drowned, which would account for her having been buried away from the rest of her people. This little lake lies in the heart of the wilderness. There is but one clearing upon its shores, and that had been made by lumberers many years before. The place abounded with red cedar. A second growth of young timber had grown up in this spot, which was covered also with raspberry bushes, several hundred acres being entirely overgrown with this delicious berry. It was here annually that we used to come in large picnic parties to collect this valuable fruit for our winter preserves, in defiance of black flies, mosquitoes, snakes, and even bears, all which have been encountered by berry pickers upon this spot, as busy and as active as themselves, gathering an ample repast from nature's bounteous lap. And oh, what beautiful wild shrubs and flowers grew up in that neglected spot! Some of the happiest hours I spent in the bush are connected with reminiscences of Irving's shanty, for so the raspberry grounds were called. The clearing could not be seen from the shore. You had to scramble through a cedar swamp to reach the sloping ground which produced the berries. The mill at the Clear Lake Rapids was about three miles distant from our own clearing, and after stemming another rapid and passing between two beautiful wooded islands, the canoe rounded a point, and the rude structure was before us. A wilder and more romantic spot than that which the old hunter had chosen for his homestead in the wilderness could scarcely be imagined. The waters of Clear Lake here empty themselves through a narrow, deep, rocky channel, not exceeding a quarter of a mile in length, and tumble over a limestone ridge of ten or twelve feet in height, which extends from one bank of the river to the other. The shores on either side are very steep, and the large oak trees which have anchored their roots in every crevice of the rock throw their fantastic arms far over the foaming waterfall, the deep green of their massy foliage forming a beautiful contrast with the white, flashing waters that foam over the chute at least fifty feet below the brow of the limestone rock. By a flight of steps cut in the banks we ascended to the platform above the river, on which Mr. Wise's house stood. It was a large, rough-looking log-building, surrounded by barns and sheds of the same primitive material. The porch before the door was covered with hops, and the room of general resort, into which it immediately opened, was of large dimensions, the huge fireplace forming the most striking feature. On the hearthstone, hot as was the weather, blazed a great fire, encumbered with all sorts of culinary apparatus which, I am inclined to think, had been called into requisition for our sole benefit and accommodation. The good folks had breakfasted long before we started from home, but they would not hear of our proceeding to Stony Lake until after we had dined. It was only eight o'clock a.m., and we had still four hours to dinner, which gave us ample leisure to listen to the old man's stories, ramble round the premises, and observe all the striking features of the place. Mr. Y. was a Catholic, 
and the son of a respectable farmer from the south of Ireland. Some few years before, he had emigrated with a large family of seven sons and two daughters, and being fond of field sports and greatly taken with the beauty of the locality in which he had pitched his tent in the wilderness, he determined to raise a mill upon the dam which nature had provided to his hands, and wait patiently until the increasing immigration should settle the townships of Smith and Douro, render the property valuable, and bring plenty of grist to the mill. He was not far wrong in his calculations, and though for the first few years he subsisted entirely by hunting, fishing, and raising what potatoes and wheat he required for his own family, on the most fertile spots he could find on his barren lot, very little corn passed through the mill. At the time we visited his place, he was driving a thriving trade, and all the wheat that was grown in the neighbourhood was brought by water to be ground at Wise Mill. He had lost his wife a few years after coming to the country, but his two daughters, Betty and Nora, were excellent housewives and amply supplied her loss. From these amiable women we received a most kind and hearty welcome, and every comfort and luxury within their reach. They appeared a most happy and contented family. The sons, a fine, hardy, independent set of fellows, were regarded by the old man with pride and affection. Many were his anecdotes of their prowess in hunting and fishing. His method of giving them an aversion to strong drink, while very young, amused me greatly, but it is not every child that could have stood the test of his experiment. When they were little chaps, from five to six years of age, I made them very drunk, he said, so drunk that it brought on severe headache and sickness, and this so disgusted them with liquor that they never could abide the sight of it again. I have only one drunkard among the seven, and he was such a weak, puling crather that I dared not try the same game with him, lest it should kill him. Tis his nature, I suppose, and he can't help it. But the truth is that to make up for the sobriety of all the rest, he is killing himself with drink. Nora gave us an account of her catching a deer that had got into the enclosure the day before. I went out, she said, early in the morning to milk the cows, and I saw a fine young buck struggling to get through a pail of the fence, in which having entangled his head and horns, I knew by the desperate efforts he was making to push aside the rails, that if I was not quick in getting hold of him, he would soon be gone. And did you dare to touch him? If I had had Matt's gun, I would have shot him, but he would have made his escape long before I could run to the house for that, so I went boldly up to him, and got him by the hind legs, and though he kicked and struggled dreadfully, I held on till Matt heard me call, and ran to my help, and cut his throat with his hunting-knife. So you see, she continued, with a good-natured laugh, I can beat our hunters hollow. They hunt the deer, but I can catch a buck with my hands. While we were chatting away, great were the preparations making by Miss Betty and a very handsome American woman who had recently come thither as a help. One little barefooted garsoon was shelling peas in an Indian basket. Another was stringing currants into a yellow pie dish, and a third was sent to the rapids with his rod and line to procure a dish of fresh fish to add to the long list of bush dainties that were preparing for our dinner. It was in vain that I begged our kind entertainers not to put themselves to the least trouble on our account, telling them that we were now used to the woods and contented with anything. They were determined to exhaust all their stores to furnish forth the entertainment. 
nor can it be wondered at that, with so many dishes to cook, and pies and custards to bake, instead of dining at twelve, it was past two o'clock before we were conducted to the dinner-table. I was vexed and disappointed at the delay, as I wanted to see all I could of the spot we were about to visit, before night and darkness compelled us to return. The feast was spread in a large outhouse, the table being formed of two broad deal-boards laid together, and supported by rude carpenter's stools. A white linen cloth, a relic of better days, concealed these arrangements. The board was covered with an indescribable variety of roast and boiled, of fish, flesh, and fowl. My readers should see a table laid out in a wealthy Canadian farmer's house before they can have any idea of the profusion displayed in the entertainment of two visitors and their young children. Besides venison, pork, chickens, ducks, and fish of several kinds, cooked in a variety of ways, there was a number of pumpkin, raspberry, cherry, and currant pies, with fresh butter and green cheese, as the new cream cheese is called, molasses, preserves, and pickled cucumbers, besides tea and coffee, the latter be it known I had watched the American woman boiling in the frying-pan. It was a black-looking compound, and I did not attempt to discuss its merits. The vessel in which it had been prepared had prejudiced me, and rendered me very sceptical on that score. We were all very hungry, having tasted nothing since five o'clock in the morning, and contrived, out of the variety of good things before us, to make an excellent dinner. I was glad, however, when we rose to prosecute our intended trip up the lake. The old man, whose heart was now thoroughly warmed with whisky, declared that he meant to make one of the party, and Betty, too, was to accompany us, her sister Nora kindly staying behind to take care of the children. We followed a path along the top of the high ridge of limestone rock, until we had passed the falls and the rapids above, when we found Pat and Matt Y waiting for us on the shore below, in two beautiful new birch-bark canoes, which they had purchased the day before from the Indians. Miss Betty, Matt, and myself were safely stowed into one, while the old miller and his son Pat and my husband embarked in the other, and our steersman pushed off into the middle of the deep and silent stream, the shadow of the tall woods, towering so many feet above us, casting an inky hue upon the waters. The scene was very imposing, and after paddling for a few minutes in shade and silence, we suddenly emerged into light and sunshine, and clear lake, which gets its name from the unrivalled brightness of its waters, spread out its azure mirror before us. The Indians regard this sheet of water with peculiar reverence. It abounds in the finest sorts of fish, the salmon trout, the delicious white fish, masque and black and white bass. There is no island in this lake, no rice beds, nor stick, nor stone to break its tranquil beauty, and, at the time we visited it, there was but one clearing upon its shores. The log hut of the squatter P, commanding a beautiful prospect up and down the lake, stood upon a bold slope fronting the water. All the rest was unbroken forest. We had proceeded about a mile on our pleasant voyage, when our attention was attracted by a singular natural phenomenon, which Matt Y called the battery. On the right-hand side of the shore rose a steep perpendicular wall of limestone, 
that had the appearance of having been laid by the hand of man, so smooth and even was its surface. After attaining a height of about fifty feet, a natural platform of eight or ten yards broke the perpendicular line of the rock, when another wall, like the first, rose to a considerable height, terminating in a second and third platform of the same description. Fire, at some distant period, had run over these singularly beautiful terraces, and a second growth of poplars and balm of gilades, relieved by their tender green and light airy foliage, the sombre indigo tint of the heavy pines that nodded like the plumes of a funeral hearse over the fair young dwellers on the rock. The water is forty feet deep at the base of this precipice, which is washed by the waves. After we had passed the battery, Matt Y turned to me and said, "'That is a famous place for bears. Many a bear have I shot among those rocks.' This led to a long discussion on the wild beasts of the country. "'I do not think that there is much danger to be apprehended from them,' said he. "'But I once had an ugly adventure with a wolf two winters ago on this lake.' I was all curiosity to hear the story, which sounded doubly interesting told on the very spot, and while gliding over those lovely waters. We were lumbering at the head of Stony Lake, about eight miles from here, my four brothers, myself, and several other hands. The winter was long and severe. Although it was the first week in March, there was not the least appearance of a thaw, and the ice on these lakes was as firm as ever. I had been sent home to fetch a yoke of oxen to draw the saw-logs down to the water, our chopping being all completed, and the logs ready for rafting. I did not think it necessary to encumber myself with my rifle, and was therefore provided with no weapon of defence but the long gad I used to urge on the cattle. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when I rounded Sandy Point, that long point which is about a mile ahead of us on the left shore, when I first discovered that I was followed, but at a great distance by a large wolf. At first I thought little of the circumstance beyond a passing wish that I had brought my gun. I knew that he would not attack me before dark, and it was still two long hours to sundown. So I whistled and urged on my oxen, and soon forgot the wolf, when, on stopping to repair a little damage to the peg of the yoke, I was surprised to find him close at my heels. I turned and ran towards him, shouting as loud as I could, when he slunk back, but showed no inclination to make off. Knowing that he must have companions near, by his boldness, I shouted as loud as I could, hoping that my cries might be heard by my brothers, who would imagine that the oxen had got into the ice, and would come to my assistance. I was now winding my way through the islands in Stony Lake. The sun was setting red before me, and I had still three miles of my journey to accomplish. The wolf had become so impudent that I kept him off by pelting him with snowballs, and once he came so near that I struck him with a gad. I now began to be seriously alarmed, and from time to time shouted with all my strength, and you may imagine my joy when these cries were answered by the report of a gun. My brothers had heard me, and the discharge of a gun for a moment seemed to daunt the wolf. He uttered a long howl, which was answered by the cries of a large pack of the dirty brutes from the wood. It was only just light enough to distinguish objects, and I had to stop and face my enemy to keep him at bay. 
I saw the skeleton forms of half a dozen more of them slinking among the bushes that skirted a low island, and tired and cold, I gave myself and the oxen up for lost, when I felt the ice tremble on which I stood, and heard men running at a little distance. "'Fire your guns!' I cried out, as loud as I could. My order was obeyed, and such a yelling and howling immediately filled the whole forest, as would have chilled your very heart. The thievish varmints instantly fled away into the bush. I never felt the least fear of wolves until that night, but when they meet in large bands like cowardly dogs, they trust to their numbers and grow fierce. If you meet with one wolf, you may be certain that the whole pack are at no great distance. We were fast approaching Sandy Point, a long white ridge of sand running half across the lake, and though only covered with scattered groups of scrubby trees and brush, it effectually screened Stony Lake from our view. There were so many beautiful flowers peeping through the dwarf green bushes that, wishing to inspect them nearer, Matt kindly ran the canoe ashore and told me that he would show me a pretty spot where an Indian who had been drowned during a storm off that point was buried. I immediately recalled the story of Susan Moore's father, but Matt thought that he was interred upon one of the islands farther up. "'It is strange,' he said, "'that they are such bad swimmers. The Indian, though, unrivalled by us whites in the use of the paddle, is an animal that does not take readily to the water, and among them who can swim seldom use it as a recreation. Pushing our way through the bushes, we came to a small opening in the underwood, so thickly grown over with wild Canadian roses in full blossom that the air was impregnated with a delightful odour. In the centre of this bed of sweets rose the humble mound that protected the bones of the red man from the ravenous jaws of the wolf and the wild cat. It was completely covered with stones, and from among the crevices had sprung a tuft of blue harebells, waving as wild and free as if they grew among the bonny red heather on the glorious hills of the north, or shook their tiny bells to the breeze on the broom-encircled commons of England. The harebell had always from a child been with me a favourite flower, and the first sight of it in Canada growing upon that lonely grave, so flooded my soul with remembrances of the past that, in spite of myself, the tears poured freely from my eyes. There are moments when it is impossible to repress those outgushings of the heart, those floodgates of the soul that sever, in passion's tide to part for ever. If Matt and his sister wondered at my tears, they must have suspected the cause, for they walked too a little distance, and left me to the indulgence of my feelings. I gathered those flowers, and placed them in my bosom, and kept them for many a day. They had become holy when connected with sacred home recollections, and the never-dying affections of the heart which the sight of them recalled. A shout from our companions in the other canoe made us retrace our steps to the shore. They had already rounded the point, and were wondering at our absence. Oh, what a magnificent scene of wild and lonely grandeur burst upon us as we swept round the little peninsula, and the whole majesty of Stony Lake broke upon us at once. Another lake of the thousand isles, in miniature, and in the heart of the wilderness. Imagine a large sheet of water, some fifteen miles in breadth and twenty-five in length, 
taken up by islands of every size and shape, from the lofty naked rock of red granite to the rounded hill covered with oak trees to its summit, while others were level with the waters and of a rich emerald green only fringed with a growth of aquatic shrubs and flowers. Never did my eyes rest on a more lovely or beautiful scene. Not a vestige of man or of his works was there. The setting sun that cast such a gorgeous flood of light upon this exquisite panorama, bringing out some of these lofty islands in strong relief, and casting others into intense shade, shed no cheery beam upon church spire or cottage pane. We beheld the landscape, savage and grand in its primeval beauty. As we floated along the channels between these rocky, picturesque isles, I asked Matt how many of them there were. "'I never could succeed,' he said, in counting them all. One Sunday Pat and I spent a whole day in going from one to the other to try and make out how many there were. But we could only count up to one hundred and forty before we gave up the task in despair. There are a great many of them, more than any one would think. And what is very singular, the channel between them is very deep, sometimes above forty feet.' which accounts for the few rapids to be found in this lake. It is a glorious place for hunting, and the waters, undisturbed by steamboats, abound in all sorts of fish. Most of these islands are covered with huckleberries, wild grapes, high and low bush cranberries, blackberries, wild cherries, gooseberries, and several sorts of wild currants grow here in profusion. There is one island among these groups, but I never could light upon the identical one, where the Indians yearly gather their wampum grass. They come here to collect the best birch bark for their canoes, and to gather wild onions. In short, from the game, fish, and fruit which they collect among the islands of this lake, they chiefly depend for their subsistence. They are very jealous of the settlers in the country coming to hunt and fish here, and tell many stories of wild beasts and rattlesnakes that abound along its shores. But I, who have frequented the lake for years, was never disturbed by anything, beyond the adventure with the wolf, which I have already told you. The banks of this lake are all steep and rocky, and the land along the shore is barren and totally unfit for cultivation. Had we time to run up a few miles further, I could have showed you some places well worth a journey to look at, but the sun is already down, and it will be dark before we get back to the mill. The other canoe now floated alongside, and Pat agreed with his brother that it was high time to return. With reluctance I turned from this strangely fascinating scene. As we passed under one bold rocky island, Matt said laughingly, "'That is Mount Rascal!' "'How did it obtain that name?' "'Oh, we were out here burying, with our good priest, Mr. B. This island promised so fair that we landed upon it, and after searching for an hour, we returned to the boat without a single berry, upon which Mr. B. named it Mount Rascal. The island was so beautiful it did not deserve the name, and I christened it Oak Hill, from the abundance of oak trees which clothed its steep sides. The wood of this oak is so heavy and hard that it will not float in the water, and it is in great request for the runners of lumber sleighs, which have to pass over very bad roads. The breeze, which had rendered our sail up the lake so expeditious and refreshing, had stiffened into a pretty high wind, 
which was dead against us all the way down. Betty now knelt in the bow, and assisted her brother, squaw-fashion, in paddling the canoe, but in spite of all their united exertions, it was past ten o'clock before we reached the mill. The good Nora was waiting tea for us. She had given the children their supper four hours ago, and the little creatures, tired with using their feet all day, were sound asleep upon her bed. After supper several Irish songs were sung, while Pat played upon the fiddle, and Betty and Matt enlivened the company with an Irish jig. It was midnight when the children were placed on my cloak at the bottom of the canoe, and we bade adieu to this hospitable family. The wind being dead against us, we were obliged to dispense with the sail and take to our paddles. The moonlight was as bright as day, the air warm and balmy, and the aromatic resinous smell exuded by the heat from the balm of Gilead and the pine trees in the forest, added greatly to our sense of enjoyment as we floated past scenes so wild and lonely, isles that assumed a mysterious look and character in that witching hour. In moments like these I ceased to regret my separation from my native land, and filled with the love of nature, my heart forgot for the time the love of home. The very spirit of peace seemed to brood over the waters, which were broken into a thousand ripples of light by every breeze that stirred the rice-blossoms, or whispered through the shivering aspen trees. The far-off roar of the rapids, softened by distance, and the long mournful cry of the night-owl, alone broke the silence of the night. Amid these lonely wilds, the soul draws nearer to God, and is filled to overflowing by the overwhelming sense of His presence. It was two o'clock in the morning when we fastened the canoe to the landing, and Moody carried up the children to the house. I found the girl still up with my boy, who had been very restless during our absence. My heart reproached me as I caught him to my breast for leaving him so long. In a few minutes he was consoled for past sorrows, and sleeping sweetly in my arms. A Canadian Song Come, launch the light canoe. The breeze is fresh and strong, the summer skies are blue, and tis joy to float along, away o'er the waters, the bright glancing waters, the many-voiced waters, as they dance in light and song. When the great Creator spoke, on the long unmeasured night, the living day-spring broke, and the waters owned His might. The voice of many waters, of glad rejoicing waters, of living leaping waters, first hailed the dawn of light. Where foaming billows glide, to earth's remotest bound, the rushing ocean tide rolls on the solemn sound. God's voice is in the waters, the deep, mysterious waters, the sleepless, dashing waters, still breathe its tones around. End of chapter 18 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, by Moira Fogarty November 2010